Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today our subject is the world of Ottoman prisons. We're speaking with a scholar whose book is hot off the press called Prisons in the Late Ottoman Empire, Assistant Professor of Ottoman and Modern Middle East History at Binghamton University, Dr. Kent Shul. Dr. Shul, thanks for coming on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much, Chris. Dr. Shul's work deals with the transformation of the prison system during the late Ottoman period. He's looking at broadly the realm of criminal punishment and incarceration, um, exploring, of course, the legal transformations that are going on, but also looking at the social world of prisons a little bit, sort of using the prison uh, as a way of studying uh, Ottoman society and Ottoman modernity during this late period. So, Dr. Shul, for our, our non-Ottomanist uh, listeners in particular, I was wondering if we could speak a little bit, you know, more generally about the history of prisons, the history of, of course, the phenomena of, of incarceration, and maybe figure out what is distinct uh, about prisons during this late 19th century, early 20th century period. Oh, my pleasure. The, not a lot of work has been done on Ottoman prisons, so I had to get into the world of prisons through the literature that's been produced in North America, Europe, um, and Asia. There's a highly developed literature on in prisons and incarceration in those fields. And so what I found very quickly um, is that there is a general theme around the world, a, a during the age of modernity, if we want to use that problematic term, uh, that the concepts that prisons and crime and punishment, criminal justice, became part and parcel with broader state, nation-state construction plans and agendas. Um, And the primary form of punishment uh, became incarceration. Now, this has always been, incarceration has always been a form of punishment, uh, but but, uh, dating way back, medieval period, that type of thing. Um, but it really became the primary form of punishment around the world uh, at, for your normal, typical criminal. Not, I'm not talking about political prisoners here. I'm talking about just your average, everyday thief or um, somebody who got in trouble with the law because of civil disobedience or something else like that. I mean, and to a large extent, it remains the uh, most one of the most common uh, criminal punishments to this day in many it parts does. of the world, although there are... Uh, other forms of punishment, certainly fines and, and what have you. Of course. And in that period, of course, there's other ways of punishing exactly. criminals maybe that aren't used today. So, Exactly. For instance, uh, throughout the long history of the Ottoman Empire and around the world, uh, um, exile was a common form of punishment. Uh, fines, of course, were there, but also corporal punishment, whether whether it's public shaming mm-hmm. in the stockades, if you think of that type of thing, or um, beatings, whippings, uh, bastionado, those types of things were very common. Uh, over the course of the 19th century, though, those were being, st- or they were supposed to have been steadily eliminated around the world. Mm-hmm. They still happen. There's still plenty of uh, examples around the world of that happening. However, as you had this push to standardize punishment, to standardize the terms of crime, to standardize the procedures of of criminal justice, the punishments available became more and more circumspect. Sure, and I'm I mean, of course, human societies have developed no shortage of ways to you know punish people and 
people love punishing each other, it would seem. But what is the goal of, of these, these punishments? Is there a change in the mentality? For example, is it about reform? Is it about revenge? You know, these types of debates come up even when people talk about capital punishment oh, in the today, U.S. today. What is right. the point of these punishments? Is there a shift going on in this 19th century, you know, sort of thinking in terms of what is the role of criminal punishment? What is the role of this new phenomenon of incarceration in society? I guess um, the idea, the sociology of crime and punishment, or the uh, looking at criminology in general, generally views the purpose of punishment uh, from three different perspectives, if I remember correctly. One is retribution, uh, basically paying back what you owe because you've offended society. Another is isolation and separation from society. Another one is the idea of rehabilitation to reintegrate into society once your debt is paid. Generally speaking, and this is not something new in the history of the world. Yeah. So, uh, however, in at least in if we want to use the term Islamic societies, the idea of rehabilitation has been part of punishment for a very long time. Uh, this became in Western societies. It became very um, important late 18th century into the 19th century with works by people. Um, Jeremy Bentham, uh, Caesar Bessaria, others who started talking, at least in the European context, that we, yes, there's supposed to be a retribution, there's a, there's a debt that needs to be paid, justice needs to be served, but there should also be uh, a way of rehabilitating these prisoners so that they can return and become contributing members of society. That idea, though, had already been within uh, uh, Islamic states uh, for a, a long time. But in practice, throughout most of the Ottoman period, if I understand correctly, Ottoman government is actually fairly hands-off in terms of these uh, issues of criminal punishment. And by that I mean if a some sort of a violation occurs between two Ottoman subjects, if those individuals, for example, were to decide to settle, whether in a monetary way mm-hmm. or in, in some way that... For example, the legal system would basically function as a means to just maybe record that settlement. Record like, and sanction it. Right. Yeah, correct. Yes, it was... I don't... Um, there were informal and formal ways to settle these types of disputes uh, or crime. If it was a threat to the state, then yes, right. the state would come in and, and take whatever it viewed it as a threat, whether it's highway banditry, whether it's disturbing the public, whether it's messing up, messing around with weights and measures in the local market. Mm-hmm. These types of things, the state would intervene necess- uh, through their agents very, very clearly mm-hmm. or directly. However, other things were allowed to be negotiated between the parties. I think this is kind of the... This is the pre-modern state, if we want to look at it this way, where right. there's a lot more avenues for uh, local uh, acculturation or, or local practice to come in. Mm-hmm. And you know, the Ottoman state was no different than w- what we see around the world at that point in time. And perhaps this, this new trajectory that we're talking about today in the podcast in the 19th century is really just an extension of that. It, however, it's as if the state views many more activities as sort of under its umbrella of what is, uh, you know, its business, so to speak, right? right? There are more things that can be deemed a threat to the state than were in the past. I, I would I would agree with that to an extent. I think part of the culture of modernity is this obsession with codification and standardization. Therefore, uh, criminal punishment 
was brought under that umbrella as well. Uh, criminal legislation, just like civil legislation, trying to codify the laws and standardize the practices and procedures, and the desire for the state to be the central power, just like you're saying. Um, it's not that states weren't interested in these types of things before. Part of it's the limits of what they could do in right. terms of technology, in terms of uh, direct influence, and methods of rule. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I think here, um, I know a lot of our listeners are familiar, if they've read something about prison, it's probably been something touching on Foucault. Right. Right. And Foucault's um, uh, definition of the prison in Discipline and Punish and its, its role in governmentality. Could you maybe discuss, you know, Foucault's ideas, but more specifically how it fits into the Ottoman case, maybe right. what's missing there, what the Ottoman case can tell us is lacking in Foucault, I guess, because a lot of people are getting tired of hearing about Foucault, right? <laughs> well, you know, uh, Foucault has given us, uh, as a philosopher, as he characterized himself, he's given the social sciences and humanities a, a, a lot of important conceptual uh, approaches to trying to figure out the relationship between individuals and society, society and the state, uh, the governmentality, the workings, uh, phenomenally important and anybody who wants to deal with crime and punishment has to go through Foucault at least give give uh, kowtow to, to some uh-huh, extent yeah. give give respect where respect is, is due um, and so I entered into this as I said before uh, into, entered into the, the world of crime and punishment in the late Ottoman Empire through uh, through Western European uh, work secondary works on crime and punishment and Foucault was everywhere is everywhere. Yes. Yeah. And so, yes, of course, I need to engage. If you talk about prisons and discipline and punish, you know, discipline and punish, his famous book always has to come up. And also, if you're working in an Ottoman or Turkish context, well, then Midnight Express always comes up, the movie as well, <laughs> of the epitome of what is supposed to be the, the, the uh, Turkish prison. What I found with Foucault is, of course, his argument regarding the role of prisons in terms of social control and discipline, uh, crime and punishment, it's, it's absolutely applicable. That is one of the central purposes of, of every prison and penal institution, is to help to discipline the populations, control them, and set order, create mm-hmm. social order. No doubt. That's a, that's a no-brainer, so to speak. However, what I found, though, with Ottoman prisons and I think this is applicable around the world also, is that the prison also represents a complicated... Uh, the, the punishment systems, criminal justice systems, represent a complicated uh, compromise and negotiation between different agendas by different factions uh, around in society and in the state. That it is not just a, a top-down construction of something that is imposed... But it is something that is that is pushed back against. It's reformed. You have to it, it, uh, it when it's implemented on a local level. There's all sorts of different inputs that come into it that 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 Foucault neglects, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and it also gives you a window into broader societal issues. Uh, prisons act as a very good window into broader issues within Ottoman society or any society. So if you take a Durkheimian approach to things, David mm-hmm. Garland and his idea of, of prisons being a, a social institution, uh, you, you all of a sudden see a lot of different influences and compromise coming in. And it's an imperfect uh, outcome of all of these compromises. Uh, that's what, a, the, what the prison becomes. So you really get a chance to look at 
broader issues such as uh, the attempts of a modern state to professionalize its its officials, um, the uh, the attempts to centralize political power, centralize power over uh, crime and punishment. You get insights into issues of gender with gender mm-hmm. incarceration, sure. women and even children in prisons, the redefinitions of childhood, what this, when is a child culpable and where should they be incarcerated for those guilty of crime? What happens? The idea of reforming and rehabilitating prisoners, labor, all sorts of things. All of a sudden you get insights into when you treat a prison as a social institution. This goes beyond what Foucault asks. Well, I guess that's where our conversation is going then. Let's, you've given a, you've thrown out a lot of themes there. Let's get, let's get into the world of Ottoman prisons and talk about, you know, life in the prisons, that, that social dynamic you're talking about between the prisoners and the guards, between the state and the citizens. So where does the story of, uh, modern prisons in the Ottoman empire begin? It's where most would situate the modernization of the Ottoman Empire with uh, 1839 and the beginning of the Tanzimat period, where there's legislation clearly saying we need to reform the criminal justice system. Uh, They create for the first time in 1840 the first Ottoman penal code, where they start to codify Islamic criminal law and, and set it out. It's a very small document, 40 articles, but it is the first foray into transforming uh, the criminal justice and punishment. And then from there, it, it continues where they have iterations of new uh, penal codes until you get the 1858 mm-hmm. Imperial Ottoman Penal Code that is never rescinded but expanded immensely over the course of the rest of the empire, over the time the, the empire exists. You have new policing structures set up. You have uh, uh, new criminal procedural codes, new criminal courts, all sorts of things that are happening is sometimes it's ad hoc. Sometimes it's in one area, but not another. Uh, it is not a march toward, toward the ultimate criminal justice system. I, I don't want to make it sound like it's completely linear. Exactly. I mean, one of the things we've learned about this narrative of the Tanzimat period is just how incremental a lot of things were exactly. and how experimental too. Yeah. Experimental. And how the, how the impacts of these or, and how the, uh, experience of, Early attempts at impl- implementation influenced later policies when we see a really larger scale expansion of state apparatuses. So maybe in order to get a sense of, in practice, what we're talking about, when and where do we see the construction of these sort of large modern prisons? Okay, maybe the first modern prison or the model prison would have been in the 1870s, right in 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 Istanbul, uh, by uh, under by um, Abdul Hamid. Um, he, uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid II. This was probably one of the first model prisons that was built. It was supposed to be according to contemporary standards. The Ottoman Empire had already started to participate in international criminal justice conferences, or at least attend those. And they also, in 1880, they established the first, uh, the very first prison nizam um, the very first uh, prison regulation, comprehensive prison regulation, 99 articles or mm-hmm. 92 articles, very detailed and who's supposed to do what and how things are supposed to run. Um, so that really, you know, this is building at the same time that the policing, same time that the court systems are being transformed, same time as these criminal procedural codes and all these types of things are happening, prisons are being introduced and changed as well. 
And when do the prisons start to reach the provinces, though? When do, when do we start to see a prison in every vilayat, for example? You've already had prisons all around the empire, and this is one of the problems why prison reform was slow to happen is because it wasn't under any one ministry's jurisdiction. It was split up between the finance, the justice, and the local councils, and it didn't have a clear funding stream. And so you'd have these model prisons created. But there had been, I mean, uh, the the government buildings would have a prison in them, uh, perhaps. Right. Uh, and so would fortresses would have been traditionally used. The zindan, these types mm-hmm. of things, these dungeons, um, have been traditionally used as, as prisons, places of incarceration and punishment throughout Ottoman history. So those were continuing to be used. But now they're starting to try to transform them. So mm-hmm. one of the biggest things about the transformations of the Ottoman criminal justice system is it didn't wipe away the old system and just replace it with something new. It transformed the current structure, added new things in, and uh, became a hybrid of stuff, a blending of modern concepts with the content, with the current mm-hmm. situation that they had. You know, I come across this from time to time when researching that, you know, there's some sort of crime involved in what I'm studying, and... You get the sense that the the prisons, you know, in in Ottoman Anatolia are rather porous, actually, that they're not, you know, lockdown type prison situation that we think of. Are these model prisons different in that regard? Are are they theoretically airtight or? Um, I guess I go back to the 1880 prison regulation code that was and they were supposed to be their dormitory style, the ideal prison that what they wanted run, how they wanted to be run by this code, was that, yes, there would be a prison in every um, in every province, a major provincial town, city, in the sub-districts, and then on the Kaza level, that you would have a different type of prison in each place, that on the Kaza level would be your... Uh, petty criminals uh, sentenced up to three years maximum. At the Sanjak level, you'd have between three, you know, three to five years, and then you'd have a penitentiary set up on the on the vilayet level, where that was where your hardened criminals, where they were supposed to be sentenced to hard labor. Mm-hmm. It could be life sentence, fifteen years, of five years and above, basically in hard labor. That was the ideal that was created. Um, and some prisons were created along those standards, um, and but it wasn't comprehensively attempted to. It wasn't comprehensively implemented until really the second constitutional period. So you had a beginning of this, um, but it was still again. It was the the institutional structure still wasn't located in one uh, in one ministry. There was it was still very convoluted. They're they're working it out basically. Well, so you mentioned the issue of prison labor, of forced labor, sort of a utilitarian use of criminals who are incarcerated. So I guess this falls in the category of maybe paying their debt to society due to their crime. Of course, prison labor is expanding in the U.S. today, actually. It seems that they're contracting out prisoners to factories and stuff. I read about this from time to time. So it's certainly always there with us, but is this something that's on the rise in the Ottoman Empire, or is it on the wane with this new criminal system? Um, The new criminal system, uh, ideally, it was supposed to be on the rise, or a continuation of the early modern period, where you had the imperial shipyards, and they imposed a kurek, 
uh, kind of the, the ore rowers. Yeah. That was the hard labor. And that was very prevalent in the early modern period, Ottoman Empire. They did away with the imperial shipyards going into the 19th century and replaced the, the uh, well, they mechanized. They started mm-hmm. to mechanize the, the ships, the, the Navy. So that did away with the need for the punishment being, the, uh, prisoners being used as oarmen. Uh, however, at the exact same time, that uh, that you had them doing away with kurek in terms of actual oarmen, they were still using the term kurek to mean hard labor. Exactly. Uh, as the, the whole punishment system was being transformed in the Ottoman Empire from one uh, with a variety of punishments, like I was saying before, from um, uh, from exile, fines, beatings, these types of things, and incarceration to primarily incarceration and fines. Uh, you and Part of that, the prison code I was saying, the 1880 prison code, is that every worker, every prisoner was supposed to be engaged in productive work. However, they didn't have the capacity to do that, even to the end of the empire. They did start to create workshops, prison workshops, and even factories, large-scale factories. Right. Um, but in the end, by World War One, through the, by the end of World War One, 1917, only about 8.5% of all prisoners were actually engaged in working. Even during the war, when there's such a labor even, issue, even during the war, we can get to that more if you want to. But well, it's fascinating. The- why is why is there not more going on? Because you know they have a lot of labor issues when it comes to, for example, building railroads in exactly. Anatolia. This was a huge problem. Why why wasn't in practice this uh, prison labor? First, maybe we should talk about um, the prison population in general, the numbers of prisoners. They're okay. very small. Uh, in 1917, you had 1916, 1917, you had roughly 21,000 prisoners in the, in the entire, entire empire. empire. Oh, wow. um, and in these prison factories, look, it took a lot to train the prisoners. So you didn't you didn't set up big prison factories uh, for the criminals or people who are convicted who are only going to be in there for a couple months. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they those weren't engaged in the labor. So on the Kaza level, maybe you had a small workshop, maybe. Um, but you focused on the penitentiaries in terms of where you would have the prison factories and the large-scale harnessing of that labor because, hey, they're in there for a long time. They're at least in there for five years. You can train them, and then you can get some. You can get a return back on your investment, so to speak, if we want to talk about it in the uh-huh. capitalist way. Yeah. Um, so you basically, so only one third of the prison population are those who are incarcerated for five years or more. So already, so if you're thinking twenty one thousand in nineteen sixteen, all of a sudden it's only seven thousand that you have to work with, and eight and a half percent of that total prison population, you know, reduces it down. Uh, you do have the factory set up. You do have them employed in others who have road building skills and agricultural skills are harnessed. There's about, by in 1917, you have 1,049 prisoners who are actually engaged in the, uh, like what's, what labor battalions were doing in terms of road work, in terms of agricultural production. But twice that number were capable, had the skills, but hadn't been harnessed yet. And that was one of the things that, that the Ottoman government during World War One was trying to do, was harness more of that prison labor. So if that answers your question a little bit with some of the... Also, you had many prisoners who were being released and brought into the military. If they had, were of good behavior and had served two-thirds of their sentence and they were in, 
in prison for a lesser offense, a junha or a kabahat, then they could opt out of their prison sentence and join the military. I, I, I think they probably should have stayed in the prison instead well, of going I mean, to the Ottoman military, but that's another thing. Well, the whole, the whole World War I and Ottoman Empire is very fascinating precisely because things that would, would never be a priority over, for example, keeping criminals in prison, such as planting wheat, suddenly become so important that you do exactly. have to make those kind of uh, weird uh, exactly. compromises. It, it's also the view of who a criminal is. Okay, somebody who is in prison for getting in a a fight because they were drunk, and maybe yeah. they're in there for three months, isn't a hardened criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, isn't one of these individuals that's a threat to society. And we we have a tendency to lump all criminals together if they're convicted, like even if they're sentenced for twenty four hours till <laughs> they're a convict uh-huh. in there or. Ottoman established didn't seem to have that view of them. I mean, the hardened criminals you had to separate, you had to be careful of, and you kept them separate. But the, your rank and file, normal, everyday um, Ahmed and, and Layla mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, they, they're, they're not this big threat to society, and so they are mobilized. This, this is a way, there is heavily in the mind at least of at least prison reformers that they want to rehabilitate prisoners. Okay. The most hardened ones, you can't. They, they, they would give up on necessarily. But all the, the, most of them, they thought they could. So you mentioned less than 10% of uh, prisoners are involved in labor yeah. at, at, at most in the late Ottoman period. That's what it looks like. And uh, so what are the rest of them doing? What are, what are the, what is life like in the prison? Are they hanging out, playing cards? What are they? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of sources that give us um, insight. Uh, some travel accounts, some prisoners who wrote some memoirs about what life was like, some foreigners who were in Ottoman prisons who wrote some memoirs. Also, you have inspection reports of what they're doing. And generally speaking, uh, most prisoners had very little supervision. Um, they were in dormitory-style prisons, uh, allowed to mill around in the courtyards and roam the prisons and play cards, smoke cigarettes, drink tea. Um, it was a pretty relaxed atmosphere, generally speaking. And also with quite quite little supervision generally speaking so sounds like university well maybe <laughs> yeah i mean you didn't have the free but freedom freedom of movement outside the prison necessarily mm-hmm. some were allowed to go and work or work in other areas or even if they were if they were seriously ill perhaps they could be released early or have convalescence leave and then have to report back it was a pretty relaxed situation in many in in most circumstances now don't get me wrong i don't want to try and paint it like it's a country club where martha stewart would want to go but it was um it was a it was a situation where there there wasn't a lot of hard and fast discipline where there's a lot of bullying necessarily um, by prison guard. Well, I, let me retract that. There was, there are lots of cases of prisoner abuse and, and abuse, but prison conditions could be quite relaxed. But there are also a lot of these prisons suffered from a dilapidated and very unhygienic. Right. That's the flip situation. side of it. It must exactly. be rather neglected. Yes, most of the, in the worst cases, you had open sewage. In the, in the prisons, you had dilapidated buildings, you had prisoners stuffed in little chicken coop type structures because of immense overcrowding. 
the worst situations, you had massive outbreaks of cholera, mm-hmm. scabies, typhoid fever, uh, typhus, all these types of things, which could devastate a prison. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact prison, but there was a report that I came across where 100 prisoners died of an epidemic sure. in one prison. I mean, these were not uncommon. And No, I come across that every couple of years, in fact, in somewhere in the Adana region, for example. Exactly, they, particularly because of the, the fevers that would go on in yeah. that area because it's so semi-tropical almost. Yeah. The, there, were, there were a lot of these issues. And so, yes, prison life could be relaxed, but... You had issues of really poor hygiene well, okay, and overcrowding. So with the issue of poor hygiene, I mean, of course, hygiene also falls, well, it's a very loaded term. It falls into this category of trying to discipline people and regulate people and make okay. them clean. Nevertheless, open sewage, rampant yeah. fevers, you would think the prisoners would uh, maybe complain about this, either rebel or, you know, they could even seek legal risk. Uh, right. legal recourse, go to Arzahalji, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, which they did, which many did. So, But yes, uh, one of the biggest, at least in the reports that I found and what I read, one of the, one of the biggest causes for prisoner escapes and riots um, was awful, the awful conditions. Um, so because there wasn't a lot of supervision and sometimes these were very dilapidated prisons, it was easy to escape. And you had a higher rate of escape, particularly if the health conditions were so bad. If they didn't have access to running water, uh, many some many prisons didn't early. On, you know, they didn't have access to abdesthane, um, regular toilet. You know, yeah. these types of plumbing things or good ventilation. Look, if prisoners could escape, they would. Uh, and this was the prison high rate of escape was blamed on poor prison conditions by officials. So that was a serious issue. It also could cause riots, and you have a series of riots. But another cause for riots and escape was prisoner abuse by guards, um, by really harsh conditions that could also happen. It just, you know, it, it depended on each prison. It depended on the sp- specific circumstances. So all these problems arise, and of course we're talking about... Uh, Not arise, they've been around, I four, think. Yeah. Four decades of the, from the Hamidian period to the end of the Ottoman Empire, and uh, do we see... Uh, a change in practices from the state point of view. Do we see attempt to like overhaul the prison so that they're cleaner or uh, maybe have more professional behavior by guards? Uh, well, it starts in earnest during the Hermitian period, but in fits and starts in some respects, but it really doesn't f- um, come to fruition or cul- these efforts culminate during the second constitutional period. There was a huge effort to professionalize and supervise the prison uh, officials and cadre, the guards. And you have, I have cases, many cases of prisoners petitioning to the cent- to the Ministry of Justice and to the prison, the central prison uh, administration, saying, claiming of being abused and asking for their rights and saying that this isn't right according to the new prison reforms, using the language of the reformers for their own good. And you have, I have incredible evidence of serious investigations being carried out by the Central Prison Administration against wards and guards, where wardens and guards, where the wardens were actually fired, the guards were punished, and their pay was withheld, and some of them incarcerated for 
abusing prisoners and, and, and not fulfilling their duties. So you do have a supervision all of a sudden of prison guards and accountability that may not have been there at, to that extent before. Did it wipe out corruption and abuse? No, not at all. But you do have a concerted effort, and prisoners were actually, you can say in a flip, in a, in a really interesting juxtaposition or, or upending of what we think state-controlling society, the prisoners being used as a form of supervision over the guards and the wardens because the Central Prison Administration is actually taking their petitions, at least some of them, seriously. It's really an interesting dynamic that's going on here. I mean, at the height of World War I, 2% of the Ministry of the Interior's budget was being spent on prisons, which is an enormous sum. It sounds like a lot, yeah. Considering what the Ministry of the Interior was responsible for in in the empire under the direction of Talat Pasha at this time. That becomes, it's an important ideological thing because this is a modern state. We're modern and civilized, therefore we must have this type of a civilized prison and criminal justice system. But it's also a way of harnessing, trying to harness power, productive power, to create uh, prison factories and other things. So um, you do see huge efforts being made and a lot of expenditure of funds resources and time uh, trying to transform the prison system. I'm concerned with, well, do we stamp it a success or a failure? I don't think that's the right way to look at it personally Mm -hmm. because, look, prisons around the world are failures if you want to look at them in terms of trying to rehabilitate prisoners, uh, uh, justice, these these types of things. Prison, no prison is a good place to be anywhere in the world. So how do we measure success and failure? I, I like to look at it. I think it's more useful, in my, in, in my opinion, to look at it in terms of how does it affect the lives of prisoners and guards on the ground, uh, the local populations. How do these prison reforms actually transform what incarceration is and, um, and uh, the practice of it and the experience of it. That's that's how I try to look at it, whether it's a success or failure. Because, look, all these plans that the, the prison administration wanted to do, for instance, they wanted to professionalize guards, the guards, professionalize the prison cadre. And they put great efforts in into wanting to... Their goal was to have a prisoner-to-guard ratio of 1 to 7. That was the goal, announced goal in 1912 or 1911. And to make prison guards... Educated that the ideal prison guard was a reserve uh, army or gendarme officer because they had modern education, supposedly. They knew how to, to take the unruly masses and train them into good soldiers and citizens. Well, who else would be more ideal than somebody like that to be a prison guard, to help be the representative of the state, the front line of the state, and helping to reform prisoners that was the goal and yes many of the prison guards and officials were former military how do i know this because most of them got called up during the war Mm -hmm. and so they never got that prisoner to guard ratio they wanted Uh, at one point it got as low as one in 16 but during the height of the war it was one in 30 so they never got to that point but the efforts were made to do it for a bunch of mitigating circumstances as a result of mitigating circumstances Uh, they built a huge number of new prisons with running water, with electricity, with better ventilation, courtyards for exercise, these types of things, better conditions. They did. They were built. Um, And they were successful in reducing the overcrowding in many prisons. Uh, 
Karasi is an example, Sanjak, uh, down in Balakasar. That's now not in Balakasar. This, um, in 1914, this prison was horribly overcrowded. It was built to house maybe 350 prisoners. They had 770 prisoners in that place. The conditions were horrific. Talat Pasha got information about it. He went down and made a personal visit and then paid to build a new prison to hold a capacity of 350 um, prisoners. And the prison population was reduced from 770 down to 450. It was still overcrowded, but it improved it immensely mm-hmm. than what it was. So these are the types of things I, you know, you have, you have a lot of efforts, time, money spent. It didn't fix all the problems at all, but it did make a, it did change the lives of many of the prisoners and their conditions in these prisons. Well, and with all this attention to prisons and, you know, the criminal justice system in the Ottoman Empire, I mean, on some, on some, on some level, it, it makes sense because crime is, in some level, uh, inherently a challenge to the hegemony of the state. So exactly. it's, it would be an obsession of the state. But when you say 2% of budget for an institution that houses only tens of thousands of people in an empire of millions of people... It's quite conspicuous. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about the mentality going on there. And, and since this is so related to morality on some level, reforming people, maybe we could talk about how uh, women and children also fit into the prison system. Because we do come across a lot of women's prisons being built in this time. Yes. Um, you have, uh, sometimes you have separate women's prisons or separate sections of a new prison that were dedicated to women being built. Um, but the, at, at the most, women made up 6% of the prison population, at the most. Um, I think that was in 1914, uh, perhaps, that I came across where you had standardized statistics for all the prisons. And what, do women, what are women going to prison for in the Ottoman Empire? Yeah, the vast majority of them were going to prison for, um, uh, for assault and battery and for theft. That's the vast majority of prisons are being. Is that similar to men's? uh, Yes, the 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 top crimes committed are fisticuffs, basically getting fighting, assault and battery. Not Mm -hmm. not not violent or shadid or really Mm -hmm. really graphic um, assault and battery, but just you know you get it's like you get in a fight and you're you you hurt somebody or you do something Mm -hmm. wrong, you attack somebody. And you're incarcerated for a few months, maybe half a year, a year or something. Most women are incarcerated. Men, men the most popular crimes were theft, um, and then assault and battery. Those are the two that probably accounted for two thirds of all incarcerations were for those two reasons. I may have some of my, um, mm-hmm. uh, I may not be exactly correct okay. in that. Uh, but it's the vast majority. And the vast majority of prisoners are from the lower classes. They're farmers. They're uh, guild workers or, you know, laborers mm-hmm. in the cities. Um, and, and farmers are, are the unemployed. That's the vast majority of prison, prisoners. And they're, these are the types of crimes that they're being incarcerated for. So women, if falls in very generally with the overall prison population. So the, the crimes of women are similar to the crimes of yes. men? Are the yes. prisons of women similar to the prisons of men, or is there a different uh, approach there? There's a different approach. Generally speaking, look, if there's enough women in uh, to justify a separate quarter in the prison or its own prison, then the regimens, everything's pretty much the same. However, if there's only one or two in a prison population of 400, like there's 398 men and 
two women, they would be separated. They could be give. They would rent a separate room in the in the government building, or they would be put in the under the supervision of a local imam or papa or priest or a rabbi, uh, depending on their religious affiliation. Uh, so it could be very different uh, for the women. It could be much more relaxed, generally speaking, uh, it, than what you'd have with with the men being incarcerated in a particular prison. Mm-hmm. So there were special. There was a special effort for gendered incarceration here, uh, and sometimes the regimens could be very different. Women were supposed to be supervised by female prison guards, and and uh, that was the ideal. It didn't always happen, mm. but that was what was supposed to be done. So if you had uh, three female prisoners, you needed to have at least one female prison guard there. So there was a higher, ra- there was a lower ratio of gar- female gar- pr- guards to female prisoners than there were male, just because the numbers were lower. Mm. So then I guess I, I have to ask about children. It came yes. up recently in a podcast with Nazan Maksudian about children in the Ottoman Empire, and it's an issue that lingers to this day, that... For some reason in society, it's very common that certain crimes committed by children end up being classified as adult crimes. Mm. Nazan was talking about how in Turkey, poli- uh, incarceration related to political issues is often uh, targeting uh, what would, people who would otherwise be considered minors, and that this is a you know a major debate could be tried as adults basically right and in the u.s the the issue of race always comes up when we talk about minors being uh, incarcerated uh so when are children landing in jail in the ottoman empire or is there is there a clear definition of 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 childhood here Uh, there had uh, according to islamic law there was a clear definition of when a child would be criminally culpable and uh, in the variety of methebs, mezhebs, uh, and the Islamic legal traditions, and in, Shia, in Sunni and in Shiism, uh, usually the the they set criminal culpability at puberty, at the commencement of puberty. So for girls, it could be as early young as nine that you could be criminally culpable, uh, according to certain uh, certain. Um, uh, approaches to Islamic law, uh, certain uh, not sects but methebs, um, and then but and for boys it would be eleven, and with a kind of a cutoff date of you are criminally culpable even if you haven't manifested puberty yet at by age fourteen, fifteen. Okay, so that was the standard. So you had children, what we would consider children today, right. incarcerated but all they over were the considered do- adults. Yes, legally. they and they were incarcerated with adults. So you could again, you could have a nine-year-old girl or eleven-year-old boy incarcerated with the, in the regular prison population in the women's prison or in the in the men's prison. And is there some kind of uh, analogous institution like this for um, individuals under the age of adulthood, a uh, juvenile detention center, for example? There wouldn't not well, not necessarily. Usually, if you're if you are not seen as criminally culpable yet, then you were put in strong security to to your uh, relatives, you were entrusted to them, and they were acted as a kefil for you, basically a witness uh, for you that they were respond. They would be criminally responsible for your actions if they didn't. Oversee. But what about what about children without families? Because they're often the ones that end up in the most trouble. Right. Um, I haven't come across a lot of cases of under nine or under eleven that mm-hmm. type of situation. I haven't come across any at all that I have been able to find. Generally speaking, though. Um, 
9-11, they would be in, they would be incarcerated if they were convicted for it. Uh, and I, there's the autumn during the second constitutional period, they kept track of the number of prisoners under the age of 12 at first, um, under, well, actually under the age of 14, excuse me. And then from 14 to 20 and there, they consciously legislated to change the, the definition of childhood, uh, in the Imperial Ottoman penal code in 1911, they changed it very clearly that that uh, a child would be criminally culpable for their crimes at the age of 14. They set it at a, at a date that was sensitive to Islamic traditions, mm-hmm. um, whereas in France it was 16. In the Ottoman Empire, they set it at 14. Um, so they adjusted those practices in, in, to an Ottoman context. And they strove to get all children under the age of 14 out of prisons and put them either in strong security with their family members or in islahanes, reformatories. Mm -hmm. Now, the islahane goes, and Nazan knows much much about this. She's written on it, and her work has been extremely useful to me. Um, That islahanes first started off for orphans um, by Jevdet Pasha, I believe, and, and, Uh and that these in the Danube province. And then during the Hamidian period, they were, because of the tensions between Abdul Hamid and the former uh, Jevdet Pasha and others, they, they changed their names to a Hamidian name for a Sanai, a factory. Mm-hmm. But it was for orphans and the destitute. These were never for juvenile delinquents. Okay. In the second constitutional period, the Islahane name is brought back and made for juvenile delinquents. Ah, okay. 14 and under. So they they were they were started to be built. They were supposed to be you know um, juvies, juvie hall basically uh-huh. for ju- juvenile delinquents to reform them. It was and the emphasis was on ref- reforming them because they were young, they were malleable, they should be able to be reintroduced into society that way. So that's happening in the second constitutional at the same time, second constitutional period at the same time that they are uh, redefining childhood. In a criminal, uh, in in a legal sense, um, and then they introduce this idea of adolescence in a criminal sense, where they have graded punishments from age fourteen to eighteen. So, convicted criminals who are above the age of fourteen, if you're between fourteen and sixteen, I think it was, you got a quarter of the punishment of an adult, and then a half, and then three quarters, and then finally after age eighteen, once you hit nineteen, you're full mm-hmm. on. So they introduced these gradations, and there's a concerted effort to get prisoners under the age of 18, 18 and under, separated from the rest of the adult prison population, whether they had their own rooms and dormitories or in a completely separate uh, structure, in a separate, in a separate institution. That's interesting. I mean, this pragmat- the pragmatism we see, the compromise and all of this, it's, I mean, a lot of what you've been saying has been very analogous to prisons in other parts of, of the course, world across yes. time and and, and it's having, completely comparable yes and having but uh, you know having read little about prisons you know prison history it, it even a lot reminds me of uh criminal justice systems today all over the world yes but i want to know if you could make some uh remarks dr shul about what prisons in the ottoman empire will tell the historiography of prisons 
in general. Right. How how does the Ottoman experience uh, speak to the larger historiography? Clearly, we should not assume that the Ottoman case is inherently different. But what can this study uh, add to our understanding of uh, the development of prisons, I guess? So I'm a historian and I, I appreciate uh, historical specificity. But I also like to, I also see the value of engaging in, in global comparisons uh, in specific times and places. Uh, what I see unique in the Ottoman Empire um, at least as I, as I argue in the book, is that there is a Ottoman modernity that is mm-hmm. comparable to Japan, to Russia, to Britain in the 19th century. But it's also unique because it takes these general principles and the mentalité of the day of, of, of centralization of power, standardization of practice and procedure, and applies it to a specific Ottoman context. So what you see is a, a blending or a hybridization. I borrow that term from Ger- Carol Gluck, who's a, you know, mm-hmm. a historian of J- Japan. This idea of a, blended, uh, of a blended modernity allows us to say, yes, it is comparable. Yes, there is a push to standardize legal codes and practices. But the source of that standardization is coming from uh, is coming from Islamic law and practice, not from so much uh, whatever the Russians would have used or, the, or Japan would have used. So yes, they are looking at what the French Penal Code says, and they are taking what they see as useful and adapting it to their circumstances. So this example of 14 years old as being chosen for criminal culpability, that's unique to the Ottoman circumstance. So yes, there's there's a borrowing but mm-hmm. then there are unique specifications. And so what the Ottoman circumstance, what the Ottoman, I think, history adds to the broader perspective of, of prisons and punishment is that it changes the focus or the idealization of the Western prison as the source of good practice, as, as the exemplar of what the rest of the world should follow. It, it starts, it continues to chisel away at this sense of the white man's burden and civilization and right. modernity being centered in, in Britain and France and says, wait a second, here you have a, a penal system in the Ottoman Empire that centralizes its prison system before Britain does, before America does. America still hasn't. It's you know you have these systems and these practices that you can say are very progressive with all of their problems, like abuse, prisoner abuse, all this type of stuff is still happening. Um, they are incomplete, but it is absolutely comparable in some ways ahead of others, in some ways behind others. Uh, but it, what it does is it changes it. It it I think it uh, decenters the bastion of of progressive prisons and criminal justice from the West and allows it to allows other areas of the world to contribute to that dialogue. And I think that, uh, that comment sort of gives impetus to further study in, you know, the social life or the particular dynamics working in the prisons in the Ottoman empire in their own right, sort of within the field of Ottoman history. I'm curious. I'm just scratching the surface with this book. Well, right. I wanted to ask, you know, I come across stuff, but actually, you know, we have the Zaptie. Yes. Now we're talking a little bit of Ottoman archive nerd stuff, but we'll talk about like, we have the records of like the uh, police. You have all, all these records of the archives, but Given how much uh, 
prisons involve surveillance. Are there more records there that, that are yet to be released, do you think? Is, is, is there just a lot of stuff waiting to be read? Or is there even more that we don't realize there's somewhere? A, there's an enormous amount that's waiting to be read. I don't know if there's more to be released. I like catalog. I wish I could go back there and see everything. Yeah. <laughs> that would be, <laughs> that would be an Ottoman nerd's dream, right? So, right. right. Um, but uh, yes, the, um, the ministry, the Directorate of Public Security, for example, that set up beginning in 1909 mm-hmm. in the Second Constitution period has hardly been scratched. They have so many investigative reports, istintaknames, right, which are incredible sources. I was able to use those for prisons, where you get the actual as much as you can to the voice of a of a prisoner or an investigator, uh, somebody who's being interrogated. You get some of their words. Uh, the subaltern, I guess, if you want right. to use that term. It's it's amazing. With all the pitfalls of it, obviously, it's, mm-hmm. there's no source is perfect. These these have hardly been tapped or even scratched, even, even looked at yet. There's so much to be done in understanding the transformation, getting at the social and cultural history of this time period, the institutional history we hardly know much about. So yes, there's a ton there. I again, I just scratched the surface with the prisons. There's so much more to be done uh, from on specific provincial levels in in regions, the back and forth. Let's look at the Ottoman prisons in the Arab lands and the Balkans, not just Anatolia. There's tons of things to be done that uh, we that the sources are there and they're accessible. It's just marshalling people to do it well yeah the sense i get is that these sources because they're so rich because they involve investigations and whatnot they're really a window into a lot of different things and through uh prisons and through you know the issue of punishment we can learn a lot about what's going on in the late ottoman period i agree Uh, well dr shul we want to thank you for coming on the podcast today taking us inside the world of ottoman prisons giving us a sense of the dynamics going on between uh prisoners and the rest of uh that whole system, taking us inside the mentality of some of the officials who are working on uh, reforming and uh, expanding uh, the criminal justice system during the late Ottoman period. If I, if I might, I, I want to make sure I didn't paint a rosy picture of prisons in the Ottoman Empire. Because they're they're not doesn't sound that good actually. Okay, I'm trying to make sure that this was. I didn't say, oh, look at these. They're the wonderful examples, shining examples for the rest of the world. No, <laughs> prisons are prisons. They're comparable around the world. But that's the point: is that the Ottoman prisons aren't necessarily any worse than what you'll find in in Tsarist Russia at this time, or in France or Britain. It's very clear the research that's been done. They're comparable. There's, prisons are still awful places. Let's just leave it at that. And we'll encourage our <laughs> listeners to go out and learn more about that, to, to check out your book, which has just been released, Prisons in the Late Ottoman Empire. And we'll have a bibliography on our website so we can also compare with literature on prisons elsewhere. Uh, so our listeners can pick up all those books from their local library and read about how horrible prisons are everywhere. <laughs> Such a cheery, happy time. <laughs> So we want to thank you for listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. Remember, you can visit us on Facebook, get in touch with the rest of the Ottoman History Podcast community, over 14,000 strong now, and uh, also leave your comments and questions. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take care.